All right, open your Bibles up to Genesis, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter uh, 11. We're going to look at Genesis 11 through 12, 9 today. If you have a welcome table Bible, it's on page 8. And uh, we're going to look at another genealogy today, right? We've been kind of sort of trudging through these genealogies in this first part of Genesis. We've seen several of those now as we've moved from Adam and Eve to Noah and then to Noah's sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Today we're actually going to revisit uh, the, the, the genealogy of Shem and ultimately end up at Abram, also known as Abraham. Now I want to just give a disclaimer here, okay? Uh, he doesn't get the name Abraham until chapter 17, but I'll probably use those names interchangeably today. I'm going to try and use Abram as much as I can to keep us in the text that we're at. But listen, it's the same guy, okay? It's the same guy. And so uh, if I say Abraham, I, I haven't just nullified everything else that I've said so far. So um, we are at one of the major transition points in the book of Genesis. The, the first 11 chapters covered multitudes of generations and gave us this broad scope of humanity as a whole. But now for the next 39 chapters, okay, all the way to the end of the book, uh, the, the focus is going to be specifically on one family, and these chapters will cover four generations. We're slowing way down. We're going way deep in, in the, this family line, okay? This family is not only important to understanding the physical lineage of the people of Israel as God's chosen nation, but also to understanding our spiritual lineage, lineage as God's chosen people of faith. And Abraham... Abram, Abraham becomes the, the representative figure for both the nation of Israel and everyone who has faith in Christ. So today we're going to see why Israel's national heritage is important to our spiritual heritage. And I want to pray so that God opens our eyes to see these things. Lord, we love you. We're grateful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that it is not disjointed, but it tells us this grand story of redemption found only in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have put us in this time and place in history that we can know the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And so as we read this story in the Old Testament, Lord, we pray that we don't see it as just a story. We see it as truth, the truth that it is. And yet you, through your spirit, show us the fullness that lies herein. Lord, we love you, and we thank you that today we get to see Christ in your promises to Abram. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How good are you at keeping promises? Have you ever broken one? This half of the room has there. Have you ever been on the receiving end of a broken promise? Which one grieves you more? That's a question for another time. We don't always keep our promises, do we? We don't. So it can be easy for us to think that God doesn't always keep his promises either, right? Have you ever taken like your life experiences and projected those up on like if this is how I am, this must be how God is? We don't keep our promises all the time and so it's easy for us to imagine that God won't keep his either. We, we question whether or not he's able or we question whether or not he's willing, right? Now, 
what we're going to see this morning in this passage is that God not only keeps his promises in every single one of them, but he fulfills them in ways that are far greater than anything we can ask or, or imagine. And so we should take God at his word. He's trustworthy, right? That, that's, just, that's the argument we're going to make this morning. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. He keeps his promises, so believe him. And we take him at his word. Today we're going to see God make some promises to Abram, and we're going, to, we're going to see Abram take God at his word, even though these promises aren't immediately fulfilled. And we're going to see how Abram's faith and God's promises then lead to our blessing. So we need to start with the background. Look at Genesis 11, verse 10. <clears throat> these are the family records of Shem. Shem lived 100 years and fathered Arphaxad two years after the flood. Now, I'm going to save a little time. I'm not going to read through the rest of this genealogy because it's written in a straightforward way that's intended to take the reader all the way down quickly through it and to get to Abraham at the end of it, okay? Abram. And so we can start uh, reading about his history, which goes then all the way through Genesis chapter 25. Abram's going to be the focus of those chapters. So you can read through the substance of this genealogy on your own later. I'd encourage you to do that. But I want to focus on the significance of it right now, okay? Verse 10 mentions that Shem fathered Arphaxad. It's a fun name to say. You guys, let's try it. Arphaxad. That was terrible. We'll just move on. Okay? Listen, last week I, I gave you the thing. Like, you just got to say it confidently, right? If you pronounce it differently, as long as you say it confidently, nobody knows who's right. Okay? Shem fathered Arphaxad two years after the flood. The mention of the flood ties this genealogy back to the genealogies in chapter 10. Chapter 10 starts with saying that Shem, Ham, and Japheth had sons after the flood. Okay, Same phrase, so it's linking these two things together. Shem, Arphaxad, Shelah, Eber, and Peleg are all mentioned in Shem's genealogy in chapter 10. But then from there, it switches over to Peleg's brother, Joktan, and continues down his line. But here in chapter 11, Joktan's not mentioned at all. Okay? Instead, the genealogy continues through Peleg down to Abram. This is, a similar, uh, this is similar to the pattern in the genealogies of Cain and Seth mentioned back in chapters 4 and 5. In both cases, the author's showing that, that um, the promised seed of the woman, remember Genesis 3.15, you underline that in your Bible, like that's, that is the promise. God is promising that the, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent, even though the seed of the serpent's going to crush the heel of the seed of the woman. We're looking for the serpent crusher. And in both cases, the author is showing how the promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15 continues through one family but not the other. And so in the first case, it was Adam to Noah through Seth and not Cain, right? And now it's Noah and Abram through Shem and through Peleg and not Joktan. We're going to see this over and over in Genesis, how God continues to divide family lines and, and narrow in the focus of this promised serpent crusher, where, where he's going to come from. In both Shem's, uh, Seth's and Shem's genealogies in chapters 5 and 11, the names are listed in a repetitive pattern, and, and they end with the man who is the important focus on uh, the narratives that follow. Seth's genealogy ended with Noah, and then Noah's was the, or Noah was the focus in chapters 6 through 9. Shem's genealogy here ends with Abram, and Abram is the focus of the next 14 chapters. Okay, He's a big deal here. 
And so his story begins to be developed in verse 27 here. So we're going to jump down there and pick up. Genesis eleven twenty-seven through 32. These are the family records of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans during his, father's, during his father Terah's lifetime. Abram and Nahor took wives. Abram's wife was named Sarai, and Nahor's wife was named Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and, Is, uh, and Iscah. Sarai was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and his son Abram's wife, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they got, came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and then died in Haran. Now, these verses are front-loading the narrative of Abram by introducing all of these people and all of these plots that are important to his story over these next several chapters, and these people and plots will be developed throughout as we move forward. Haran is Abram's brother, but he's also the father of Lot and Milcah, okay? Lot is going to play a prominent role in the, in the next few chapters, and, and then uh, down in, in chapter 19 when we get to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot is a, is a key figure in that narrative. Abram's older brother, Nahor, um, married Milcah, who is Haran's daughter, okay? Listen, there's not going to be a test. You just need to know, um, Milcah is eventually going to be the grandmother of Rebekah, who will marry Abram's son, Isaac, in chapter 24, okay? But Isaac hasn't been born yet. In fact, we're told here in verse 30 that Abram's wife Sarai was unable to conceive and that she was childless. This is a huge theme that we'll see throughout the rest of the book. This creates some tension in the plot right here, right? And it sets us up to watch God once again bring something into existence out of nothing, just like he did when he created the world. Verse 28 tells us that Haran died where he was born in his native land, in Ur of the Chaldeans, okay? Now you can look at your map. On your handout there, there's a yellow circle down in the southeast corner that says Ur. That's where they're at. That's where he was born and that's where he died. Ur was located in the southern part of the Babylonian territory. In modern day, it would be about 186 miles southeast of Baghdad in Iraq. Okay? This is a real place because this was a real event. The things that we're reading are history. They actually happened. It's also the starting point of Abraham's journey, Abram's journey, as we're told in verse 31. Abram began the journey with his father, Terah, leading the way, and they were heading to the land of Canaan, we're told, but they settled in Haran, and Terah died there. Haran is the other uh, yellow circle on your map there in the north. Now, the city Haran and Terah's son, Haran, they're not related. They're spelled differently in Hebrew. They just happen to be the same name in English, okay? No connection there uh, of, of significance in that sense. Uh, the city was located along the border of what was now modern-day Turkey and Syria. Again, a real place. And it was, it was an important center for travel and trade in the ancient Near East, okay? So we have the background now. That little tiny paragraph just is pregnant with, with all kinds of information that's going to be helpful for us as we move into these, um, 
these ensuing uh, chapters, okay? And, and so uh, with the background stage set, we move into chapter 12 when God speaks to Abram. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse any, I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. We're going to pause there. This is the beginning of what's known as the Abrahamic covenant, okay? Starts here in chapter 12 with God's promises to Abram, and then it'll get confirmed in chapter 15 with a covenant ceremony. We saw that covenant ceremony with Noah. There was a covenant ceremony that God made with Noah. Uh, when Tim Franks was here, he preached on that. Chapter 15, we're going to see another covenant ceremony between God and Abram. In chapter 17, it's going to be um, expanded in, uh, with the institution of circumcision as a sign of the covenant. But for now, we want to just focus on these promises that God has laid out here uh, to Abram. But before we look at the promises, we need to look at the command, right? There's a command here. What God says to Abram, what does he tell him? Go. Go. Leave your homeland, leave your family, and I'll tell you where to go from here, right? It's a call for Abram to give up everything that gives him identity, everything that gives him security, and to trust God completely with the unknown. In chapter 15, verse 7, it tells us that this call happens while Abram is still in Ur of the Chaldeans. And so these first three verses here in chapter 12 really fit chronologically right before verses 31 and 32 of chapter 11 that we just read. And then Abram's journey began in, it, it began in Ur, and it stalled out in Haran until his father died. After his father died, then that's where we pick back up in, in verse 4 and 5 here. And we see that he picks back up and he heads out from where he left off. God's promises to Abram here can be summarized into three categories, Okay. The promise for, uh, of descendants, the promise of land, and the promise of blessing. Descendants, land, and blessing. God's going to give Abram a people and a place, both of which are needed if Abram's going to become a great nation as God promised, right? You need a land, you need a, a, a people in order to be a nation. <clears throat> and God tells Abram that he's going to make Abram a great nation so that he can bless Abram and... Bless all the nations through Abram's offspring. But Abram doesn't know where the land is, okay? The reference to Canaan here, that's, a, that's an author, uh, 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 that, that's, the author put that in. Moses put that in. That's for the readers to know where he's going. Abram doesn't know yet. And his wife Sarai is barren. She's unable to conceive. So what does this mean? This means that if the promises that God gave to Abram are going to come true, Abram's going to have to trust God to bring them about by God's own power, right? And it's clear from all the I will statements in verses 2 and 3 that God plans to do exactly that. I will 
make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And then he says to Abram, you will be a blessing. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. God blessed Adam. Adam. Okay, we're, back, we're, we're backing up here. God blessed Adam so that God could bless the world through Adam. But after the world became full of wickedness and God sent his judgment on the world through the flood, God blessed Noah so that he could bless the world through Noah. But then after the world tried to build a tower and a city to dethrone God and make a name for themselves, God sent his judgment on them by confusing their language and scattering them throughout the earth. This time... He's super patient, isn't he? This time, God makes a covenant promise to Abraham. All the peoples on earth will be, will be blessed through you. No matter how bad things get in the world from here on out, God will bring his blessing to the nations through Abram. This is why this is such a key transition in Genesis here. God is going to fulfill his promise. This is a good time for us to ask an important question. What did Abram do to deserve this blessing and these promises? Jack squat, right? Absolutely nothing. In fact, his family worshipped other gods before the Lord spoke to him. God himself brings out this point in the, in, at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua 24. Verses two and three, Joshua says to all the people, this is like right before he says, uh, you worship who you will, as for me and my house, we will worship God, okay? That's the context this is coming in. Joshua's saying, listen, this is what the Lord God of Israel says, long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods. But I took... The Lord is saying this, but I took your father Abraham from the region beyond the Euphrates River, led him throughout the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants. God chose Abram purely by God's grace. The same way he chose Adam, the same way he chose Noah, and the same way he chooses us. Your ancestors worshipped other gods, but I took Abram and led him. This is what God tells the nation of Israel at the end of Joshua. That sounds like this beautiful description of the gospel that we have in Ephesians chapter 2, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, living according to the world, the devil, and our fleshly desires. We worshipped other things. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ Jesus, even though we were dead in tre- trespasses and our sins. We are saved by grace. You worshiped other gods, but I took. You were dead in sins and transgressions, but God made you alive. This is grace. This is the beauty of the gospel. What does anyone do to deserve God's blessing and promises? Jack squat. Absolutely nothing. He makes promises and and brings about blessings solely because of his own glory and goodness. In Genesis 1, God created the world by the power of his word. Here in Genesis 12, what's the first interaction that we see from God to Abraham? The Lord spoke. 
He's creating a covenant people by the power of his word. In Genesis 1, the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. Here in Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abraham, go, and Abraham went. Abram took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all of the possessions that they'd accumulated and the people they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Let's pick back up second half of verse 5 here. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai, I, take your pick, on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. The beginning of chapter 12, the Lord told Abraham, go to the land I will show you. He's showing him the land here, okay? That's what's happening. He guides Abram through the land of Canaan from north to south, first through Shechem and then through the hill country east of Bethel and then finally into the Negev region. You can see that on your handout. That's that arrow moving southwestward uh, there. As God leads Abram through this tour, uh, on this tour through, through Canaan, he appears to Abram now for the first time. Not the last time, won't be the last time, but the first time he appears to Abram and he gives him a promise. He says, to your offspring, I will give this land. It's another I will statement. But Abram doesn't have any children at this point, right? Sarai is still barren. And we're also told that parenthetical statement, Moses puts that in there for the, for the readers. Listen, the Canaanites are still living there as Abram goes through it. They're still in the land, so God says, I'll give your offspring this land. Abram has no offspring, and other people are in the land. What are you doing, Lord? Right? And yet when Abram hears this promise, how does he respond? By worshiping the Lord. Now, there's no tabernacle yet. There's no temple yet because there's no nation of Israel yet that's been given the instructions to build these things. And so Abram builds two altars, one in Shechem and one in the hill country east of Bethel. These altars serve as places of worship. Verse 8 says Abram called on the name of the Lord. When, when, when Seth is introduced back in, at the end of Genesis chapter 3, and then it says he had Enosh, like it starts to show that, that the, the line is continuing. It says at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. And then we hear about Enoch who was faithful, right? He walked with God. And then we hear about Noah who was faithful, he walked with God. These are people that worshiped God. Abram builds these altars and he worships the Lord. But these altars also serve as monuments that proclaim God's ownership of the land and they symbolize the consecration of it for his purposes. He's building these things. As Abraham moves on, these altars stay as a sign of remembrance that God is made a promise, and he intends to keep it. See, what we've witnessed here in Genesis 11 and 12 today is this, this beginning of God's covenant relationship with Abram. In grace, God chooses Abram to be the recipient of his covenant promises and his blessings so that the world will be blessed through Abram. Abram responds to God's grace by believing God and doing what God says. 
Abram no longer worships the gods of his father. The Lord is his God now. That's why God is known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because of that, the Lord will be the God of Abraham's offspring as well, who are Isaac and Jacob, right? This is, this is a good time for us to ask another important question. Who are Abram's offspring? Now, I just named two sons, but, but who are the offspring that is, uh, God's talking about here? And the answer to that question reveals why all of this matters to us. Now, on the one hand, Abram's offspring are his physical descendants, but not all of his physical descendants will receive the promised blessings or the promised land. God's covenant blessings will pass through Isaac and not Ishmael, and then through Jacob and not Esau. These are physical descendants of Abram. God will give Jacob a new name. His new name will be Israel. And from him, 12 sons will be born. And those sons will come uh, to, be, to become the, the, tr- the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. These are the offspring to whom God will give the land of Canaan as he promised Abraham that he would. Think about how important this story of God's covenant promises, God's covenant beginnings with Abraham was to the original audience of Genesis here. Moses is writing this to those generation of Israelites, Abraham's descendants, who were about to enter the land of Canaan with Joshua and take possession of it. They were the ones that were inheriting this, right? They were the children of the promise, so to speak. Imagine how hearing this story, this beginning, would encourage their hearts because of where they are at in the history moment, would encourage their hearts and strengthen their resolve to go in and take this land. It's no wonder that the book of Joshua opens up with a call for them to be strong and courageous. But here's what we need to understand because it's right here in the text. The promises that God made to Abram here were always intended to carry beyond Abram's physical offspring and find their ultimate fulfillment in both a physical offspring but also spiritual offspring. God never intended just to bless one nation. From the beginning, his desire was to bless every nation. I will make you a blessing, and I will bless every peoples on the earth through you. God promised to give Abram a people and a place and a blessing and blessings so that God could ultimately reveal how he was going to fulfill his promise in Genesis 3.15 to raise up the serpent crusher. The serpent crusher will be a descendant of Abram. We know this now. The serpent crushing will take place in the land of Canaan. The people and people from every nation will inherit the blessings that the serpent crusher brings. We know this serpent crusher to be Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, an Israelite born in the tribe of Judah, descended from Abraham. He grew up in the promised land and he lived a perfect life of obedience to God the Father. And then he offered himself up on the cross as a sacrificial substitute in the place of sinners who deserve God's wrath for our disobedience. The serpent struck his heel when Jesus died and was buried, but he crushed the serpent's head three days later when the Father raised him from the dead to show that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to save sinners from God's righteous judgment and reconcile them to the Father once and for all as his adopted sons and daughters. Children of the promise. This is the blessing 
that God promised to ultimately bring about through Abram's offspring. God was pointing Abram in the direction of Jesus. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. Jesus is the seed. He's the physical descendant of Abraham through whom God's blessings to the nations would come. And the ultimate blessing that we receive through Jesus is what? Salvation from sin and from judgment and eternal adoption into the family of God. We get these things through God's grace and by faith in Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Paul says, you know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance, I love this, the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to who? Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. See, the gospel is not just a New Testament thing. We see it right here. It was first preached by God himself in the Old Testament in Genesis 3.15 when he promised the serpent crusher from the line of Eve. It's preached again right here by God himself when he promised Abraham that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. Hidden in those promises was the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul calls the mystery of Christ in the book of Ephesians. That's why we sang the song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, this morning. Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. By reading this, Paul says, You were able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And here's the mystery. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, God's promised blessings were never meant just for the people of Israel, but for people from every nation through faith in Christ. Galatians 3, 28, 29, Paul says, there's no Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you were all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. As the promised seed of Abraham, Christ is the heir of everything God promised to Abraham. And as those who are now united to Christ by faith in him, we are co-heirs with Christ according to the promise, not through the old covenant with Abraham, but through the new covenant in Christ. One author puts it this way, the purpose of the Abrahamic covenant is to bring the new covenant into existence by bringing its founder, head, and mediator into existence. The Abrahamic covenant provides Christ. Christ provides the new covenant. In other words, God's promises to Abraham get us to Jesus, and Jesus gets us to God. And to an inheritance far greater than the land of Canaan. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham understood this, at least in part. Hebrews 11 8 through 10, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive 
as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. A little bit further down in Hebrews 11, it describes this city that Abraham and his sons were looking forward to. It describes it as a better place, a heavenly one. Hebrews 9.15 says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Hebrews 8.6 says he's the mediator of a better covenant which has been established on better promises. That doesn't mean that God didn't keep his promises to Abram. It means that God's promises to Abram were always meant to serve his ultimate promise to send his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world to bring about the blessing of salvation for people from every nation, including Menunkers. And as those who've received salvation by grace through faith in Christ, listen, we read it this morning. We've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Him. Ephesians 1 tells us this. And as God's children through the new covenant established on better promises, we wait a, await a better inheritance a better promised land, and a new heaven and a new earth, that means then that we don't let our hope rest in anything that we have or long for here. We don't shape our lives around the pursuit of things that don't carry eternal value. We don't let our earthly lives be driven by earthly things. We don't despair in trials because guess what? Christ actually promised that too. You will have troubles in this world, but take heart. I've overcome it. And I'm with you. Instead, by the power of his indwelling spirit, the seal as a guarantee for our inheritance, we grow in dependence upon Christ and confidence in Christ as we hold fast to the precious promises of his word until we see their fulfillment when we see Jesus face to face. I hope that when you read any of and all of this, you see God's promise. In Christ. We don't live our lives in the bitterness of broken promises. Instead, we live in the guaranteed hope that every one of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And we continue to gather together in that hope. We continue to worship our promise-keeping God. We continue to encourage each other to be strong and courageous as we call upon the name of the Lord together. And we always strive to be ready to give the reason for this hope that we have so that others might come to faith in Christ and to receive the blessing of eternal salvation and adoption in Him that God can continue to pour out His blessings on the nations through His multitudes of children. God not only keeps every one of his promises, but he fulfills them in ways that are far greater than anything we can ask or imagine, so we should take God at his word. We are children of the promise who share in the faith of our spiritual father, Abraham. We're recipients of the blessings that God promised to bring about through him. And so when our Lord tells us to go, what do we do? We go. Let's go. Let's trust his call because it's backed by his promise. And his promises never fail. Amen? Let's pray.
Lord, we love you. We're grateful. Lord, what nation can call upon a God so faithful as you? What people can claim all of these words that you've given us to be absolute truth? except for those that you have brought to yourself by your grace through faith in the one that you have promised and revealed, Jesus Christ. Father, would you mold us more and more into his image? Would you grow our hope and make it unwavering because we see promise after promise fulfilled in him and the ones that have yet to be, we know that they will because you've said so. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.